before the advent of contemporary technology, news had to be spread primarily by word of mouth. One could not simply communicate by way of a tweet or a Facebook post. You actually had to get face-to-face or write a letter. And so there was often a delay in communication. One of my favorite examples of this comes from the infamous Battle of Waterloo, where in General Wellington's British were battling against Napoleon's France. And in order to get the outcome of the battle's um, result across to the rest of England, what they did was atop Winchester Castle, they stationed somebody who was a signal seer, someone who would receive the message from, from the ship and then report the result of the battle to someone else who would then report the result of the battle to someone else, and eventually the, the news would get across London. And so one day as the watchman is standing atop of Winchester Cathedral, waiting to receive the battle's outcome, word finally came. A ship relayed the first word to him. Wellington. He waited. Some time passed. And the second word came, defeated. Fog then descended upon the ship, and it seemed as if the message was Wellington defeated. News spread across England along with the gloom that would accompany it. And after a few hours, the fog lifted, and the signal came again. Wellington defeated the enemy. Now the full message went racing across the countryside. But this time it was met with rejoicing. We turn to Matthew chapter 28 this morning. And it seems as if something similar has happened. The crucifixion of Jesus has left the world saying, Jesus defeated. Another messianic pretender, dead. But what we find as we read this chapter is that the cross speaks a better word. That indeed his death would not only bring redemption to his people, but end with resurrection. The message is not Jesus defeated but that Jesus has defeated the enemy. And that's our main idea as we come to Matthew chapter 28 this morning, is that Jesus has defeated the enemy and is worthy of worship from all people. I want to encourage you this morning to be disciples and to make disciples. We'll work through the text by considering two fundamental realities. One, Jesus is risen. Two, Jesus has given a mission to his church. Pray with me and we'll begin. Father, we ask for your spirit to be present with us this morning. We ask that you would help us to hear from your word, that you would focus us on Christ, that you would quiet our hearts, Keep us from flitting to and fro and considering other things. Help us to think of Christ. To submit ourselves to your word. 
Lord, we pray that you would change us this morning. That you would make us more like Jesus. That you would help us as a result of hearing your word to be spurred on towards faithfulness. Lord, we, we need you. Pray that you would meet us now. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were shaken by fear of him so that they became as dead men. The angel told the women, Don't be afraid. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. Just as he said, Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then Jesus met them and said, Greetings! They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus told them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. These women who are going to the tomb of Jesus are not expecting a resurrection. They have anointing oils. What they're expecting to find is the decomposing body of the one they once called Lord. They're going with melancholy and sadness And Mark's gospel tells us they're trying to figure out who can we get to roll the stone away so that we can get in to anoint his body. They're not expecting a resurrection, and when they show up, they are met with the unexpected. There is an angel whose clothes are like lightning, white as snow. Angels we see once more in Scripture are are scary figures. And immediately, this angel tells them, do not be afraid. You're looking for Jesus who is crucified. He's not here because he is risen. Come and see the place where he lay. The angel shows up to show the women that God is at work. And to show them that Jesus is not dead. Do you ever realize that the reason that the stone is rolled away is not so that Jesus could get out of the tomb, but so that the women could get in to see that he gone, to believe that what he said is true. He's risen. What an incredible experience these women have. They are filled with joy. The angel instructs them, go. 
Go, tell others. And immediately, we have the first evangelists. Women going. Not, not, not you know, an evangelist like you think of at a big rally preaching the gospel. But evangelists in terms of that they're the first people to gossip the gospel. To tell others about what Jesus has done. What a wonderful task they're assigned to. And so these women set out to tell others about Jesus. And as they're going, before they can get started, they come across Jesus himself. And he says to them, the greetings. The word there you could actually translate just literally, wouldn't it? It wouldn't make as much sense, but it's just rejoice. You know, kind of like we might say to each other today, what's good? Say, rejoice, how are you? And look at what the women do. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped. This is important for at least two reasons. First, the most defining characteristic of the church is that we are a people committed to worshipping Jesus. Now, now we're going to come to the second part of Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to look at the Great Commission this morning, and certainly uh, the church is committed to the mission of God. But the reason we fundamentally exist is to worship Jesus. Love how John Piper starts his wonderful book, Let the Nations Be Glad. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. And here we see these women doing that which is primary in the Christian life. Falling down at the feet of Jesus and worshiping him. Secondly, this is significant because it helps us to see that Jesus is really raised from the dead. When we say that Jesus is resurrected, that Jesus lives, we don't mean that Jesus kind of lives on in our heart the way that a family pet still does. Or that he, he lives on in his teaching because we continue to teach the words of Jesus. He lives on in that way. When we say that Jesus is raised from the dead, that Jesus Christ lives, we mean Jesus Christ lives. He was raised from the dead bodily, physically. So that's huge implications. I can't tell you how many times I talk to, to Christians and when they consider what eternity will look like, they consider it as a disembodied state, kind of Tom and Jerry existence. But friends, what Jesus' own resurrection teaches us is that eternity is going to be a lot like life now, except glorified. We will have bodies that don't get sick, that don't get tired, that are glorified. This is really important. Jesus got up from the dead. It is funny, uh, the fact that women discovered the tomb helps us to understand that these events really happened. It's a really good argument for the historicity of the resurrection. You might ask, well, why? It's because in the first century, uh, the witness of women was not considered reliable. In fact, this was one of the major arguments used early on to deny the historicity of Christianity. You can't believe that. Women discovered the tomb. The philosopher Celsus lived in the second century. He argued that because these written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women, they couldn't be trusted because 
we all know women are hysterical. It's not the strongest of arguments. It wasn't the strongest of arguments then, and it's certainly not the strongest of arguments now. And what it does is it actually works in reverse. Because if the gospel authors were making up this story of Jesus' resurrection, they would not have had women discovering the tomb. They would have had men discovering the tomb. More trustworthy, less hysterical after all. Still, this is not the strangest or, or even the weakest kind of explanation of the resurrection. There are, are worse proposals, uh, and I've learned about many of them in my undergraduate. Uh, one is called the swoon theory. The swoon theory is maybe my favorite. Uh, this is the idea that as Jesus hung on the cross, that he didn't actually die. And those professional killers, uh, the Roman centurions, they took him down prematurely. He just, just had a really low heart rate. You know? They would have checked his Apple Watch. They would have been able to see. You know, heart's still beating. He's alive. And so once they got him in the tomb, and, and it was cooler in there, and the cool air blew across his body, and he resuscitated. And then, despite his wounds, was able to roll that stone away and get some five to seven miles down the road to, to show up to his disciples. Swoon theory. Now, another one is the twin theory. That when people thought they were encountering the resurrected Jesus, they were not encountering Jesus himself, but Jesus' twin. Jesus and his twin had concocted a, uh, you know, big, just, uh, I don't even know what you call it, hoodwinking, where, where one of them would claim to be the Messiah and die, and then the other one would step in and, and continue to live on as the Messiah. I'm not sure how brothers came to an agreement there, but um, it's, a, it's a proposed theory that's out there to try and explain away the resurrection. Another one is mass hallucination, that all these people hallucinated seeing Jesus. And in a phenomenon that has not since been repeated. Still perhaps most popular today is the legend theory. That Jesus is just made up. It never actually exists. But this flies in the face of all historical evidence, historical documents. Note, friends, the most plausible explanation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that it actually happened. Faith is not just believing whatever you're told. Faith is believing what you know to be true because you have good reason to believe it's true. Christianity is built on our believing things that actually happened. If you take away the historicity of the resurrection, well, then we are of most people to be pitied. It actually happened. I mean, just think of the end that these disciples met, the disciples of Jesus, the twelve. All of them met terrible ends. And some of you might say, well, yeah, we know people are willing to die for what they think is true all the time. But I don't know anybody that is willing to die for a lie. I mean, these guys are tortured. Peter's crucified upside down. Andrew is crucified. Thomas, the, the doubting one, is killed by being run through with spears. Matthew is stabbed to death while taking the Lord's Supper. James was stoned and clubbed to death. All of them were brutally killed except for John, who was exiled to the island of Patmos. These men died because the resurrection 
is true. Jesus is risen. I love what Charles Colson wrote on this matter. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. The resurrection happened. That's why the, the soldiers that were to be guarding the tomb of Jesus are bribed to lie. Did you see this? It's in verses 11 through 15. Read with me. As they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. If this reaches the governor's ears, we will deal with him and keep you out of trouble. They took the money and did what they were instructed. And this story has been spread among the Jewish people to this day. And so the chief priests see a really good opportunity with those who were guarding the tomb of Jesus. You see, if you were on guard duty and something went awry and it was your fault, the penalty was typically, well, death. And so what they have here is an opportunity to help dispel the notion that this Jesus wasn't a messianic pretender, but the real thing, and that they had really screwed up. So that they can cover the whole thing up, they think, by paying those who were guarding the tomb of Jesus to say that they fell asleep and that the disciples stole the body. This is a pretty good opportunity for the, the soldiers. You know, we, we could probably die for failing in this assignment, or we could take some hush money and lie. There's still some problems, though. For example, but because of the penalty of death, you know, for losing a prisoner, it would be really unlikely that they would fall asleep at all. Or that they would all fall asleep together. Right? It's not like, like oh, you know what? We have a high-profile person here, dead in the tomb. He's not going anywhere. I know he claimed he was going to raised from the dead, but uh, let's, let's slip the onesie on, sip some hot cocoa, and then hit the hay. Go to sleep. That didn't happen. But let's say, even if they did, if they fell asleep at the same time, one would think that the sound of a stone rolling away would have woken them up. Additionally, if they were all asleep when the body of Jesus was stolen, how do they know that the disciples came and stole it? This is is implausible. It's a story that's circulating in the first century, and Matthew is already exposing it as a lie. He's saying, Jesus rose from the dead. He really does live. And friends, if Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything about reality. It must change 
everything about your life if it's to mean anything to you at all. It's not just something you can assent to intellectually and then be unchanged by. What, what I mean is this. Um, how many of you, I'm, never mind, I'm not going to ask you. Most of us believe that man has walked on the moon, right? I didn't ask. I figured there's probably one conspiracy theorist that's like, <laughs> Hollywood basement. If that's you, it's okay. Don't tell anyone. But we all believe that man has walked on the moon. But does it change your life? I mean, not really. If Jesus is really raised from the dead, it has to change your life. If Jesus is risen, it means that rebel sinners can have peace with God. If Jesus is risen, it means sin has been justly punished in Christ. If Jesus is risen, it means that by faith you can receive his righteousness as your own. If Jesus is risen, it means that death cannot hold you. If Jesus is risen, it means that he really is going to return and turn suffering into glory. If Jesus is risen, then he is God. If Jesus is risen, he is worthy of worship. If Jesus is risen, he is worthy of your life. If Jesus is risen, he is worthy of your faith. If Jesus is risen, he is worthy of your love. If Jesus, Jesus is risen, he is worthy of your all. If Jesus is risen, then we should shout amen because we can be saved. Jesus' life demands our lives in response. He is risen and he is worthy of worship. He's worthy of your discipleship and mine. Friend, let me ask you, is Jesus the master of your life? Or is he a mascot who kind of lives on the margins of your life? Cheers you on, supports whatever you want to do, and never asks for any kind of obedience in return. Brothers and sisters, we must submit ourselves to Christ as the risen Lord. He is Master and Savior. If he is risen, we should be his disciples. And indeed, he is risen. And he has given us, his disciples, a mission. Look with me at verse 16. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, and remember I am with you always, 
to the end days. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus has authority over the moon and the stars and the sun and the wind and every blade of grass, all the things that have been, all the things that are, all the things that will be. He has authority over the president. He has authority over the nations. His authority is without boundary and without end. He is the supreme ruler of everything. And it's from His authority that he commissions his followers to go out to the nations and to tell them to repent of their sin and to worship him. From his authority, he gives the commission to the church to make disciples. That's the command in the text. I'll avoid giving the, the Greek lesson here, but you should know in this text there's one imperative and there's three participles. Now, a participle can have imperatival force, as we know, and these ones do. But what I want you to understand is there's one main imperative or command verb. Does anybody want to guess what it is? We can do some participation. It's not go. Make disciples, yeah. Yeah. We, we think that because it's a participle. It has that imperatival force, go. But really, the the main command here is is make disciples. That's the action. And the way we're supposed to fill out this command, the manner in which we're supposed to go filling it out, is as we go, it's more like as you live or where you go, right? In your daily life, like when you go to to Starbucks to get a latte, uh, when you go about your normal morning routine, as you are going, and for some of us, we might be missionaries, and as we go and live in a foreign land, we we are to be making disciples. Second thing is baptizing. That's your your other participle. And then the third one is, is teaching. We're to make disciples. The idea here is that we are to know Jesus, to worship Jesus, and to invite other people into that. But what does it mean to, to baptize someone into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? I think baptizing here is a synecdoche or a catch-all term for, for the whole conversion experience. What, what Matthew is telling us is that as we go and witness, people will come to believe in Jesus. And as they believe in Jesus, we are to baptize them into the name of Jesus. Right? The, the ritual of baptism signifies outwardly that inward reality, that a heart has been changed, that this particular person is no longer a part of the world, no longer dead in sin, but is living in Christ. And so in baptism, we have that that wonderful portrayal of our union with Jesus. We go into death with Christ, and then we come out of death with Christ, united to him in his death, united to him in his resurrection, ready to walk in the newness of life. This is what we're doing when we're baptizing. We, We are recognizing that the gospel has worked, that the individual we are baptizing has has come to believe in King Jesus. Baptism is a bright line of demarcation that shows, 
hey, I'm no longer living in the world. I am now part of the church. I've been united with Christ. So the church is to baptize, to make disciples. Furthermore, the church is to teach those disciples, to teach everything that Jesus has commanded. Not some things, right? He doesn't say, you know, teaching them, those disciples you have made, to observe some of the things I've commanded you. No, no, all of them. Disciples are made when, when we are converted to Christ. We're, we're all to be disciples. We're all to grow as disciples. Your discipleship doesn't end at your baptism, right? Discipleship is not a one-time relocation of your body uh, to the end of a church aisle at the end of a church service. Conversion is not a one-time dip in the pool. It is a lifetime of repentance. It is a lifetime pursuing Jesus. It is a lifetime of becoming in practice what you've been declared in Christ. And part of how you grow is by learning what Jesus has taught. And so disciples are to be both learners and teachers. This command is not given to us as individuals. It's given to the church corporately. We are all to be involved in the work of disciple-making. Teaching is, sounds intimidating, but if you learn about Jesus and then you teach others or tell others about Jesus, well, then you're teaching. That's the idea here. Teach others about Jesus. Make disciples. You, you baptize them and you teach them. Generally, the teaching comes before the baptizing. We are to aim at helping people recognize who Jesus is. Parents, special word for you here, Teach your children. One of the easiest ways, I don't want to say easiest isn't the right word, one of the best ways for the church to make disciples is to teach our children. Parents, are you teaching your children the gospel? Are you modeling to them the Christian life? What the priorities of a Christian should be? You're always teaching. Are you teaching your children to follow Jesus? Discipleship starts in the home. Home is where people are made. Mothers, fathers, you have a great opportunity to teach your children about the promise that God has made. That whoever comes and puts their faith in Jesus can be saved from sin, can have life together with God and his people. Children, listen and learn from your parents. Kids, give thanks to God if you have godly parents who are teaching you his word, teaching you to follow Jesus. Pray that God would give you faith. What your parents 
are giving you by teaching you God's word is a gift that will shine and sparkle more and more as you age. Cherish it and give God thanks. Church, we are not the primary discipler of children. Parents are. But we are to help and encourage parents in this endeavor. Children in our church, they're not a distraction or second-class citizens. They're not to be seen and never heard. They're people made in the image of God that we are to minister to, to share the gospel with, to pray for. So even if you don't have any kids, you're not off the hook here. You're to be a part of helping children to grow up into disciples who follow Jesus. You want to teach Making disciples is not optional for us. It's required of of all of us. We all have a part to play. This makes me think, of course, of Tolkien's The Hobbit. Love, early on in the book, he has this little paragraph about Bilbo Baggins. He writes this, This hobbit was a very well-to-do hobbit. And his name was Baggins. The Bagginses had lived in the neighborhood of the hill for time out of mind, and people considered them very respectable, not only because most of them were rich, but also because they never had any adventures or did anything unexpected. You could tell what a Baggins would say to any question without the bother of asking him. This is the story of how a Baggins had an adventure and found himself doing and saying things altogether unexpected. He may have lost the neighbor's respect, but he gained? Well, you will see whether he gained anything in the end. Bilbo is very hesitant to go on this adventure, if you know the story. And eventually Gandalf, who's a wizard, if you don't know, convinces Bilbo to go on this grand adventure. By the time you get to the end of the story, you know that this adventure was of supreme value. And that even even though he thought himself very small and insignificant, there was a part for him to play. Brother and sister, There is a role for you to play in the Great Commission. You might think yourself insignificant, but God has a part for you to play in the making of disciples. What's stopping you from witnessing to others about who Jesus is? Maybe maybe you do think you're small or insignificant, you're you're too sinful, you don't know enough, face not great enough. But I would just point you to the disciples. Look with me at verse 17. Jesus came near and said to them, well, that's verse 18. Verse 17, 
When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. This is such an encouraging verse. There they are, face to face with the resurrected Jesus, worshipping him, and some of them doubt. Some of them doubt. What this teaches us is that God doesn't look at you in your failings and in your flaws and say, Ugh. No, no. Look what Jesus does. So they worship him, some doubted. Jesus came near. Jesus draws near to his people. Their insufficiencies don't stop Jesus from drawing near to them, giving them the command or promising them, I'm with you always to the end of days. Jesus doesn't flee the presence of his disciples because of their doubts or shortcomings. Instead, he says, I can work with that. And he can. He's good at it. God can work with you. He has commanded you, us as a church, to make disciples of all nations. He has the authority to give us such a command. And he's promised to do it with us, to be with us. And if you ever just take some time this afternoon, maybe just even if it's five minutes, and ponder the reality that Jesus is with you. So what are some ways, practically, we can participate in the making of disciples? Let me give you three quick ones. First of all, pray. Prayerlessness is tantamount to faithlessness. Pray. Pray for our church. Pray for the members in this church. Pray for other churches that are preaching the gospel faithfully. Pray for the church overseas. Pray for India and Africa and Russia. Pray that God would move. Yes, God has ordained the ends. But he's also ordained means. And one of the means by which he aims to accomplish his purposes in the world is prayer. What might God want to do through your prayers? Pray that the gospel would flourish and that disciples would be made. Secondly, give. Give to those who are serving in ministry, both near and far. It's one of the reasons we as a church try to give to, to church plants. We want the gospel to flourish. It's why we give to uh, Lottie Moon through the SBC. That, that money year-round goes directly to the support of international missionaries. We want our money to serve us. We can't be everywhere all at once. But we can use our money to put our influence all kinds of places. We want our money to serve the purposes of the gospel so we can give. Lastly, we can witness. We can witness. Wherever you live 
is where God has called you to witness right now. Some of you may be called to go and live elsewhere, overseas and in Africa or China. And when you get there, your job will be the same. To witness. To witness about who Jesus is. To worship Jesus. These are all things we can do. I think one of the most practical ways that we can witness, we can share the gospel with others, is through hospitality. And I don't mean like, I don't mean Martha Stewart turn a pine cone into a centerpiece, your whole house is in perfect order kind of hospitality. I mean real hospitality. Sharing your life with other people. Having people into your home. Going to lunch with people. Sharing coffee. What hospitality is, it's, it's loving the stranger. It's, it's loving others. It's really interesting how Jesus is described. And there are three ways the Bible completes this sentence. The Son of Man came. Three ways. First, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Secondly, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And here's the third way. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is always going to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. He didn't have a really big outreach program. He ate a lot. And he did it with other people. Friends, meals are social occasions that are built into life. They are ministry opportunities. You can have meals with other people. I mean, even during this time of COVID, if you don't want to get face-to-face with somebody, you know, throw something in the microwave, jump on Zoom, and, and spend five to ten minutes with somebody. Somebody in this room. Let me challenge you, this week... Connect with someone in this room that you don't know. Get coffee, have lunch, have somebody over to your house. Do it. Look up a non-Christian that you're friends with, in your, that maybe in your phone, on Facebook. Engage them. Invite them into your life. If you regularly share meals with others and you have a passion for Jesus, You will be building up Christian community and you will be reaching out in mission. I think so many of us love the idea of community, love the idea of outreach, love the idea of winning the loss. But the reality of doing these things, well, we like it a lot less because it's hard easy to get fired up for the Lord. It's much harder to follow through. And I have to tell you, I would much rather all of us have one person into our home each week for a meal than for us to attend four or five different Bible studies. It's not that I'm anti-Bible study. We love God's Word. It feeds us and nourishes us. But God doesn't want us just on the sidelines studying the playbook. He 
wants us in the game. Doctrine is for devotion. Our learning is for living. Our faith should bear fruit. Brothers and sisters, eat with others. Build relationship. Witness. One of the best encouragements I get at Rockfish when people visit, so often hear, that's one of the most welcoming churches that I've ever been to. And I'm thankful for that. I often remind myself that there's a difference between friendliness and making friends. The latter is much more difficult. Yes, be friendly, but commit yourself to making friends with one another and with others who come through our doors, with people that you interact with during the week. Friendship is often a precursor to effective evangelism. So invite folks to your home. Invite people to church. Build relationships and witness. We can be involved, we should be involved in the process of being disciples, worshipers of Jesus, and of making disciples by baptizing and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. How will you become a better disciple and a more committed disciple maker? That's the question you need to walk away with this morning. How will I be a more faithful disciple and a more faithful disciple maker? Brothers and sisters, this is another DNA text this morning. We've done three of them this month. right? We, we belong to Jesus and therefore we belong to and are committed to one another. We're committed to humbly serving and loving one another as Christ Jesus has humbly served and loved us. And we are committed to fulfilling the Great Commission insofar as it depends upon us. We are committed to being disciples who follow Jesus and making disciples. We are committed to worshiping Jesus and witnessing to Jesus. Do not forget the mission. We must stay the course. Make disciples and be a disciple. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your steadfast commitment to us. We praise you that you are faithful and we are faithless. You see the depths of our hearts and you love us the same. We thank you for rescuing us. People who were in rebellion against you, dead in sin, unholy and unworthy, unlovely, and yet in Christ, you have loved us. You have cleansed us from all sin and all unrighteousness. And you have made us your sons and daughters. This is scandalous and remarkable. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name.
Amen.